Hello and welcome to the Plato's Academy Centre podcast. My name is Donald Robertson and today's guest is Jean-Manuel Rubineau. Uh, Jean-Manuel is Associate Professor of Ancient History at Rennes II University. He specialises in Greek antiquity, the historical anthropology of sport and the history of social inequalities. He's the author of several books, including The Dangerous Life and Ideas of Diogenes the Cynic, which is what we're mainly going to be discussing today, translated by Malcolm de Beauvoir, which was uh, published recently in the English translation in May 2023 by Oxford University Press. So, Jean-Manuel, can you begin by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself uh, and about the work that you do? Uh, yes, thank you for in, your invitation first. And uh, yes, I'm working. I've been working for the past twenty years um, uh, about uh, social history of the ancient world. So basically, I, I began uh, by uh, studying the social inequalities, hierarchies, um, these kind of things, and uh, I um, I ended. Uh, trying to to build um, a renewed image of the uh, the social life and the everyday life in ancient Greek cities. So the the um, the aim was to balance the image, uh, the scholarship has a tendency to produce about uh, ancient world because we have a tendency to idolize the ancient world, uh, speaking about democracy, uh, beauty, aesthetics, architecture. Etc. And my point was to to complete the image and to to provide um, information data about the social inequality and domination. So that was my biggest yes. point. And uh, Diogenes, in a way, uh, this uh, this study uh, is uh, this book is uh, a kind of echo of that uh, approach, uh, meaning that what I was interested in at first was studying the life of uh, beggars and the, what 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 it mm-hmm. means be a beggar on what was mendicancy in the ancient time, how it was approached, uh-huh. was tolerated, uh, how people did behave uh, with beggars, etc. So that is basically my uh, uh, original field, social history. And uh, I've been trying uh, ever since to uh, to build uh, what sometimes we call in France socio-biographies, meaning uh, you are doing a portrait, uh, studying uh, through someone uh, a kind of social category so with uh, diode mm-hmm. it was the uh, beggars the mendicants and i studied to an athlete milo milo of cotton uh, which mm-hmm. i finished a portrait of in 2016 and my point was to try to understand how in the ancient world appeared the social figure of athletes how did it begin when the yes. first athletes did appear so so in a way there are some links between the um, the old original field, social history, and the secondary field I've worked on, uh, the portraits, Diogenes, Milo, um, and uh, and so on. So there are links between uh, this and the history of sport. I began studying sport right. um, with uh, with athletes, and I kept on studying sport with uh, combat sports. So just last year, I, I published an history of ancient boxing, in which Diogenes is, because he was involved in a kind of uh, brawl, more more than a boxing fight, really. But um, he's been molested by uh, an Athenian guy, Medias, and the day after that, he came back with the boxing gloves and he paid back uh, the money. 
So, so there, there are links between all these uh, uh, projects uh, in a way. But the, the very beginning of my interest is uh, social history. And that's why Diogenes was, to me, so interesting. Well, this is great, you know, because you're talking about stuff that I think many modern readers, probably many modern academics, but certainly many educated laypersons, perhaps don't understand aspects of of the ancient world that they they don't hear much about or or understand. And Diogenes, you mentioned, was a beggar. He, I guess, he's an outsider in several ways. He's an unusual. He's an exile. Like this... he's a traveler. He's a philosopher. He kind of falls between categories. So perhaps uh, it'd be a good opportunity to to tell us a little bit more about Diogenes. Uh, for the sake of some of the listeners, I'm sure everybody's heard of Diogenes, but maybe some of them know very little about his place in uh, ancient Greek society um, and his life. So maybe you could give us a, a quick introduction to who was Diogenes the Cynic? Where did he come from? Yes, What does he represent? Yes, so he's a Greek uh, living mainly during... He's born end of the 5th century BC, so around 500 BC, a little bit before. And uh, so he's been living mainly during the 4th century BC. And he's not a Greek from central Greece, not from Athens, not from Sparta, Corinth, the Peloponnesus, etc. Uh, he's a Greek from a Greek city on the Black Sea, Sinop. And, uh, and that's a very specific origin because it put his family and him in contact with a lot of barbarian um, uh, ethnies uh, and, and uh, uh, nations, in a way, uh, Paphlagonians, uh, etc., uh, Persians, um, Bithynians, and uh, lots of non-Greek uh, communities. And uh, this is very interesting because it, uh, it must have helped him to to put in perspective his own Greek culture. So he's a Greek from the mm-hmm. north, if you want, a Greek from the Black Sea. Yeah. Uh, that's the first thing. And the, the second uh, really important characteristic of Diogenes is he has to uh, escape from his city because he was involved in a um, uh, coin forgery uh, uh, matter. Mm-hmm. And he has to escape to, to avoid jail or even execution. So he, he, he has lived... the biggest part of his life in exile. And that's a very important uh, matter because he, he was not citizen where he lived. He, he's been living most of the time in Athens and in Corinth, Athens in uh, uh, in uh, winter because the weather is mild in, in, in Athens in winter and Corinth in summer because the, the breezes uh, going through the isthmus of Corinth uh, are cooling the atmosphere, the temperature. And so he was uh, sharing his life in two parts. The year was shared in two parts, but he was living in these big cities, uh, which he was not citizen of. So because he lived in exile most of his life, he lived as a, a stranger, a foreigner, a resident foreigner yeah. in most of the cities uh, he went through, and he's even been a slave. So uh, what mm-hmm. is interesting is in Diogenes, in Diogenes is you have a kind of a very interesting picture of a guy falling from the cliff mm-hmm. of status. So he was at yes. the highest at the beginning in his city. He was a citizen of Sinopus and he was belonging to a kind of important family. And then he went down to being an exile mm-hmm. and a stranger. And then he's been um, abducted by pirates uh, at the point of his life. So he, he fell into slavery. Then he mm-hmm. was freed. Uh, so he's been going basically through 
every social condition, on every yeah. status, a man called uh, old in an ancient Greek city at the time. Uh-huh. I wonder if one day they'll make a movie about him. I don't think there are any that I'm aware of. Not, there's not, a, not, comp- not really, not complete ones, no. There's a, there's a children's book about him, but it, it, there's, some, there's some action. He, yeah, he gets kidnapped by pirates at one point. So the, the, that in itself could be the basis maybe of an interesting play or something. But he's a very, he's a very colourful, he's one of the most colourful characters and maybe in a sense one of the most enigmatic characters in Greek philosophy. And I suppose one thing that we should say about him is that our, our relationship with him is different from our relationship with a philosopher like Plato because we we have the the writings, the complete writings uh, basically, of Plato, but we have very little with regard to Diogenes. We kind of have lots of fragments and anecdotes and things from which we have to construct uh, our understanding of his life. Um, how would you describe the position that we're in in terms of trying to understand who Diogenes was from the surviving evidence? Your question is, uh, how do we understand this philosophy uh, from from the documents or his life and his philosophy, you know what? How can we how can we how can we make sure um, that we're getting him right? And, and how much information do we really have about him? Yes, we have at the same time a lot of documents, uh, around seven hundred texts uh, from Greek uh, tradition, Latin tradition, and Arabic papyri tradition, because uh, most of we know from uh, Diogenes is what we call sayings or aphorisms, uh, meanings, little quotes from uh, yeah. quotations from from Diogenes. So uh, most of them have been. Uh, um, transmitted, gathered, and transmitted in uh, in books that are not from Diogenes himself. So we we go, we get access to his philosophy through mainly sayings and anecdotes that are attributed to Diogenes. So that's the first. Um, that's the first thing. Uh, you, you're right. We don't have much uh, documents from Diogenes. We have a fragment of a treaty. A, a political uh, treaty uh, transmitted uh, by a later uh, philosopher, but uh, so basically we have a kind of indirect uh, knowledge of uh, Diogenes, yeah. and uh, this indirect knowledge is like uh, stratified through time. So we uh, the documents are uh, getting to us through time, through a very very long time. So sometimes we know that there are some kind of uh, uh, deformation, uh, twisted documents uh, and information. And for to give an example, in some mm. uh, papyri, you can have the same saying attributed to Antisthenes or Diogenes right. or Socrates. Yes. So, uh, and we are not always completely sure of the origin of the uh, the saying. So we have to work like uh, with a web of documents. When you have a kind of isolated uh. document, you basically cannot do anything in a scientific point of view with it. So you need to to cross the documents to get to stabilize yeah. the information. So that's uh, the main thing. And to to answer your question about uh, Diogenes' life, the main document for her, for us is um, uh, the life of Diogenes written by his homonymous uh, uh, author, Diogenes of Laertes. So during the at the beginning of the third century 
after Christ, so long after uh, Diogenes' life, uh, we have this document which is part of a history of philosophers uh, of Diogenes of Laetitus. So then in this document, we have not everything we know from Diogenes, but maybe 70-80% of what we really know about his life. Right. And then we have other secondary side documents to complete. What do you think are the main misconceptions that people might have about Diogenes or or about ancient cynicism in general? Uh, Yeah, the the problem of the cynicism is that it's been uh, mistreated by uh, yeah. the ancient tradition already, uh, meaning that what most of uh, um, scholars in the ancient time, I mean, uh, uh, kept from the cynicism was the transgressions. So because yeah. cynics had uh, a very strong tendency and the, a deliberate uh, aim to, um, to unbuild uh, social norms, social traditions, social conventions. They were uh, fighting against these conventions and behaving mm-hmm. against them. And because of that, they, they are associated to a lot of uh, different uh, transgressions, uh, like uh, uh, masturbating in public, which is maybe the, the most famous example of the um, tendency of cynics, philosopher, to, to, to to go through rules and to not to respect, to disrespect social rules. So the, that's the problem of cynicism from the ancient time. It was already a problem at the time. When the yeah. first cynic philosophy was produced, it was already rejected by uh, most of the scholars of the time. So when people say cynic today, in English, uh, I'm not sure if it's the same in French or not, it differs in some languages. When we talk about the cynic philosophers, we usually capitalize it. Um, And when we're talking about cynicism, this kind of negative, uh, pessimistic sort of attitude that people have, we usually just spell it lowercase. I mean, just for the sake of our listeners, could you clarify what's the difference between what people mean by being cynical today and and what we mean by being a cynic philosopher in the ancient world. Yeah, maybe we can begin with today. Today to yeah. be a cynic is to, to have a kind of very cruel uh, look on life. You, you, you don't... Um, um, you don't put around your vision of life many um, accommodations or nuances. You look uh, the reality of life uh, f- frontally. That's that's to be uh, in a way a cynic. Uh, so you don't uh, um, get any comfort with uh, romantic ideals or uh, common ideas that are more convenient. To, to make life acceptable. So I will say that. But the, the ancient cynicism is quite different. It's, uh, the, first, the term is coming from an insult. So the, I, the, the word cynicism uh, comes from kion, kion uh, in Greek, which is a dog. Uh, and uh, that's because they were uh, considered as living the life of dogs. That's the main yeah. explanation, even if we have many different explanations about the origin of the of the term but it was an insult at the beginning uh, the, the, the word cynicus uh, uh, cynic and uh, the thing is diogenes uh, antistenas before him then diogenes then their pupils um, have used that insult um, 
as a badge of honor in a way as they, yeah. have, they have uh, inverted the logic of the insult to make it a kind of coat of arms and to be proud of living the life of a dog and to um, to show it and to admit it uh, and to take some kind of uh, honor and glory from it in a way so that's yeah. an ancient way of uh, understanding the word cynicism at the beginning that's the idea of living a life of uh, poverty of uh, simplicity, of uh, frugality, uh, mainly. So that is to be a cynic uh, at the time. I think another thing is that we don't normally think of modern-day cynical people as being particularly happy or fulfilled, whereas Diogenes, by all reputations, was, uh, I don't know if happy is the right word, but he was was seen as flourishing uh, by many people. And uh, despite his, his poverty and his circumstances, he was paradoxically living uh, a very full life. Yes, absolutely. He has no rejection of pleasure and happiness. Uh, yeah. that's, that's, that's the biggest difference between uh, the two fathers of cynicism, Antisthenes, uh, which is a Diogenes master, yes. and, uh, and Diogenes. Antisthenes was rejecting uh, the idea of pleasure, which Diogenes did not, uh, really. He was accepting the idea of pleasure. He just tried to demonstrate that you, you had to take care not to be enslaved by your desires uh-huh. and your love of pleasure. But he didn't deny the pleasure of eating something you like, uh, being in the sun and enjoying being in the sun, uh, getting a good sleep, etc. So he has no um, uh, difficult relationship with pleasure. The cynicism after Diogenes is not a, um, like a mortification uh, in itself. Uh-huh. Well, I'm tempted to ask you a historical question now. Maybe it's a little bit of a deeper question, but you mentioned Antisthenes, and so I guess we should explain that Antisthenes was uh, a friend and a a student of Socrates, who we know um, exhibited characteristics that are similar to the Cynics and had teachings not identical, but similar to the Cynics. And there's a tradition that Diogenes had studied with Antisthenes and formed a kind of lineage or a succession. But there's also a bit of a question mark about um, whether he met him in person or perhaps had learned from his his writings or maybe some of his his followers. Do you think that Diogenes... Uh, well, what, are you, what are your opinions about that? Do you think Diogenes may have actually met Antisthenes and studied with him in person? Yeah, in fact, it's a, it's a complicated question. We, we, the chronology is uncertain. Uh, yeah. They might have met at the beginning of the 360s years. Uh, so it's possible. But after that, Antisthenes died, and we are not sure that Diogenes was in Athens uh, before Antisthenes died in Athens uh, during the 360s. So the chronology is uh, is quite uncertain. Some documents tell us that they met, and we have some anecdotes about their meetings. Uh, but what is what can be considered as uh, sure and stable is that even if he didn't meet him, he had access to his yeah. treaties, his books. Yeah. And, and, and the information that Antistis has, has spread around him, even if he didn't yeah. accept so many pupils. But so. He must. Yes. I was just going to say, he, he, you know, Diogenes must have met people who, who, or probably met, would have met people who had met Antistis. 
Yes, that that is quite true. The, the, around Socrates, there was a lot of uh, pupils, including Antisthenes and Xenopho and Plato, etc. And uh, lots of them were still alive when Diogenes arrived in in Athens in exile. So uh, yes, he must have, have some kind of uh, indirect sources of information. What we don't know absolutely for sure is if they really met. In person, but anyway, even if they didn't meet, they didn't meet. Sorry, uh, the, the 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 link, the intellectual, the philosophical link between them is uh, obvious. Obvious, yes. And and uh, well, another question that follows on from that, so maybe a less obvious link, but still one that could potentially be made, is what's the relationship between Socrates and Diogenes? Because sometimes Socrates is portrayed in a variety of ways. I'm thinking in particular the biggest contrast would be between the way that he's portrayed by Aristophanes in his satire and then the way that Plato portrays Socrates are are almost opposite in some regards. But sometimes Socrates is described in a way, um, even by Aristophanes, that makes him sound like his lifestyle resembles. He went around barefoot. Um, sometimes he's described as being unwashed, uh, sometimes as dressing down, living in relative poverty. And some of his views about wealth and so on seem like they resonate with the, the later Cynic views. What do you think is the relationship between the Cynics and uh, Socrates? Yeah, it's a, it's a, in a way, it's a, it's a paradoxical one. Uh, there are two, two sides of the story. Uh, if you look at their choices, uh, I mean, Socrates and Diogenes, there are a lot of common points. They are trying to uh, convert people to philosophy in everyday life. They go to meet people in every place of the city, agora, uh, assembly, sanctuaries, uh, uh, porticos, etc. So in a way, they had a kind of a, a common attitude to philosophy, yeah. trying to convert people. That's the first thing. And the second thing, you're right, uh, Socrates lived a kind of modest life. But here is the paradox. is I, We have some sayings telling that Diogenes was um, judging very uh, severely uh, Socrates' life, considering that right. there was too much comfort in that life. And uh, yeah. in, uh, secondly, you, you can say that um, you could point that uh, Socrates had a kind of very regular life with a house, with yeah. a wife, um, and in a way he had some money, because we know that he's been uh, Oplitus yeah. in the army, which means he had some kind of yes. uh, estate. Um, so uh, there are some material differences, and Diogenes was pointing that, or at least has been pretended to have pointed that differences, but uh, there are common, uh, common, lots of common points, and Socrates is a kind of grandfather of Diogenes, clearly, in a way. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. Um, and as you mentioned actually earlier, sometimes sayings are that are attributed to Diogenes are, are also elsewhere attributed to Socrates. Um, and, and Antisthenes is a kind of connection between the two of them, perhaps. I, I wanted to ask you then, why do you think, I have your book here beside me, why should people read about Diogenes today? He's not... He's an attractive figure in some ways to people. People are curious about him. Um, but he, he hasn't garnered the same amount of attention, that, for example, Stoic philosophy has in recent years. Uh, why do you think people today in the modern world, in the age of the internet, 
why should people uh, be interested in this beggar uh, from ancient Athens? Yes, um, m- maybe maybe is interesting because of this um, the way he's questioning uh, what is important in life and what is not. Uh, it's, it's, it might be the main uh, useful philosophical point for us, uh, meaning that he was uh, questioning uh, everything Greeks uh, gave value to. So uh, athletes gave value to glory, he was questioning it. People mm-hmm. were giving value to uh, richness, comfort, he was questioning it. Uh, people were giving value to uh, belonging, belonging belonging to a family, uh, attachment to your village, to your city, and he was questioning it. So um, in a way, the, the main uh, uh, lesson, the main lecture from Diogenes is uh, that you have to take a look at what is uh, important to you when you don't think about it, and you have to think about it and to mm-hmm. decide for yourself if if this is really of value. If Do you really need that? Do you really need to pursue that aim? Uh, is it a uh, um, value aim or is it an illusory one? So may- maybe that will be the... Um, the main, the, the cornerstone of uh, uh, scenic uh, philosophy for us. And I think one thing that perhaps it could be compared to is there's a, there's a modern movement uh, called minimalism um, that people are interested in embracing a simpler... Throughout history, there have always been some people who wanted to embrace a simpler uh, lifestyle with fewer possessions. And that's almost become trendy in certain circles at the moment, paradoxically, among some very wealthy people. Um, and so I think they might see Diogenes as being a kind of iconic uh, precursor of that, that whole way of thinking, although he's much more than that. Yes, absolutely. He is, a kind, he's, he's be, beginning uh, to be a kind of icon of uh, degrowth. Uh, of, uh, uh, yeah. of frugal life, yes, absolutely. And uh, uh, the fact he, he really lived that, I mean, he lived that life. He lived the life of a beggar, uh, owning basically nothing, living in a temporary uh, lodging, temporary uh, uh, housing, and uh, he was uh, basically owning his own uh, tunic, his own cloak, and there is a kind of scenic approach yeah. To, to close and, uh, and he was uh, eating basically what he could find during the day and uh, sleeping uh, uh, under the stars if it was possible and yeah. so mean, meaning he was basically renouncing to uh, private yeah. property that's one of the um, um, lessons from cynicism yes I, I wanted you to mention the story about where he lived or what he lived in Oh yeah, uh, during some part of his life, at least in Athens, we know that he was living, um, at least sleeping, uh, in a big uh, pitos, uh-huh. meaning a big ceramic jar, w- uh, which was uh, yes. left uh, on the edge of the uh, of the agora, uh, next to the in the sanctuary, the metro, in fact, and just next to the agora, on the border of the agora, and uh, th- this kind of uh, ceramic jar uh, is not the first one. To have used this kind of jar to as a lodging or as a housing or, or shelter, uh, we, yeah. we know that if we come back in time 
at the end of the fifth century BC, uh, we, um, we, we see that during the Peloponnesus War, the War of the Peloponnesus, which was between uh, 431 and 404, uh, between Athens and Sparta and their allies, um, there was a strategy at the beginning of the war, uh, Athens strategy, which was to, um, get every inhabitant of the city behind the walls of the city. So everybody was was outside the wall yeah. came in, and after that, in four hundred thirty one thirty, began a huge epidemic and lots of deaths. But uh, the first uh, point interesting for us in a historical point of view is that there was not um, enough uh, lodging for everyone, enough houses. So uh, yeah. people had to find uh, to find tents, uh, temporary uh, shelters. And they used these big jars, uh, which were normally yeah. used to store food. Uh, these huge jars who could be higher than two meters high and uh, uh, like two meters wide uh, were used to store uh, different kind of food, cereals, uh, for example. Yeah. And they were digged in the part of it was digged in the ground to make it yes. more stable and more cold. And uh, and people use these uh, empty ceramic jars. To, uh, to have a shelter, to sleep somewhere and to be protected, not really from the cold, but at least from um, uh, the different kind of uh, uh, intemperies. I don't know if yeah. the word Engli- exists in English. Intemperies, yes? You're oh, not- I don't know. Uh, when, it's rain, it. when it's raining, except, oh. okay, storm, the- rain, this kind of stuff. And, uh, and uh, so when Diogenes did that, when he arrived in Athens and when he decided to find a refuge in a ceramic jar, he was not the first one to do. And it was, um, I mean, the Athenians were accustomed to this uh, way of right. uh, living. If you needed to live that way, it was understood. So it was yes. not so shocking. Right. Awesome. So, not so much as it seems. And a good example of the mistranslation over the centuries as well, maybe one of the misconceptions is that he did not live in a barrel even though there's a statue of him, is there not? I think in uh, where is the statue? Is it in Sinope or in Corinth or somewhere? This they have a statue of him beside a barrel. I think. Yes, but this was a, this would be a big ceramic jar. Yes, uh, it, it was not a it was not a, um, a barrel. Uh, uh, and the story it's a long story. It's a, a Latin scholars. Uh, Seneca and Juvenal was the first during the first century after Christ when they were trying to describe a jar from yeah. Greek to Latin, they used the Latin word dolium, which means a barrel, a wooden barrel but, uh, and, but they knew they were um, uh, not s- super precise in their translation, they understood that, they were aware of that, but after that the idea that Diogenes was living in a wooden barrel um sedimented stayed in the tradition yeah. and, uh, and um, but but it is not possible that he was living in a wooden jar because uh, at the time of diogenes there was no such thing it didn't exist no yeah. they did not exist we have a, a, a an archaeology of the wooden barrels the first uh-huh. one are uh, from the first century bc meaning more or less 300 years after diogenes and the first yes. text talking about wooden barrels are also from the first century bc we found them in caesar Julius Caesar yes, treated. So, so yes, it's a, it's a long story. And the modern time have often uh, decided to picture Diogenes inside a barrel. 
Yes. I mention it because it's a good example of how stories kind of become distorted, you know, and part of studying classics is to try and get beyond some of the misconceptions and mistranslations that have accrued over many centuries. And I also wanted to mention a bit of trivia to you as well. In English, sometimes pithos is translated using the English word tub. And uh, I saw once that someone had a picture of Diogenes. I think it was like a caricature. And they'd misunderstood the translation and shown him in a living in a bathtub. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you can go quite so, far from the original. Yeah, quite far, pretty far removed from the from the uh, the original uh, Greek. So, okay. how do you think then uh, to come back to Diogenes's place in the history of philosophy? And maybe uh, this brings us back to the uh, to the subject of Stoicism, which I know some of the listeners are going to be interested in. How how does Diogenes differ from? all of the other Greek philosophers, and there were many Greek philosophers, and some of them had, as we've mentioned, things in common. But I think perhaps the, the one of the philosophers who contrasts most with Diogenes, and I think was contrasted with him in the minds of ancient writers, is Plato. Plato versus Diogenes. They kind of represent two different conceptions. I would uh, The way I would put it is they symbolize two different conceptions of what it means to be a philosopher. And I wonder if you could speak about that. What makes Diogenes as a philosopher different from the kind of philosopher that Plato and his students in the academy wanted to be? Yes, uh, so, so, so the main uh, difference is, is a big one. It's uh, that um, in the cynic point of view, uh, to be a philosopher means to be a philosopher in action. So you are not only a mm-hmm. scholar building ideas or philosophical systems. You are not trying to solve uh, intellectual issues, but you were living a life of philosophy. Meaning you're not only a scholar, you are an agent of philosophy. Uh, And that's the biggest difference between the cynics and most of other, um, not all of them, but some at least, uh, philosophic uh, schools of the ancient times. And uh, yes, uh, Diogenes was uh, making a lot of reproach to Plato about that, that he was yeah. not living a life of philosophy. So he was pointing the discrepancy uh, between yes. what uh, Plato, Plato said and how he lived. And he did the same with Socrates, yes. but he did lot much more often with uh, Plato's. And he was considering that uh, uh, Plato's was uh, useless because he had never um, upset anyone by a tricky question, uh-huh. a difficult question, or difficult conversation. Right. And Eugenius considered that to be a philosopher was to live a life of philosophy mm-hmm. first, and then to uh, help people, to force people to go uh, to philosophy. So, and you were asking me what was the difference between Socrates and uh, Diogenes on that point. They had a kind of mm-hmm. a common attitude, but the difference was politeness. Socrates right. was polite. Yes. And, uh, and uh, Diogenes was brutal. And this is yes. one of the reasons of his popularity in ancient times. He uh-huh. was, he was uh, really a straightforward guy and uh, he was um, respecting the principle of what Greek called paresia, meaning uh, you have to speak yes. really frankly, really freely to, uh, to people. You have to, uh, to force them to listen to you and to question them, uh-huh. themselves and their 
attitude. So the, the main difference between uh, uh, Diogenes and uh, Plato is around that. And the consequence is uh, for Diogenes, if you want to be a philosopher, you can dis- decide to be one and the next minute you live a life of philosophy. Yeah. You will, of course, you will improve as a philosopher with, with time, but you live uh-huh. a life of philosophy. As for Plato, uh, he, he said that you need 50 years to build yes. a decent philosopher. So that's a, a very long uh, way. And, uh, yeah. and you, you, have, you have to spend a lot of it studying geometry, which uh, is not something I imagine that... I think I, I'm, what I'm hinting at is I think to some extent the, the Plato's Academy um, became an academic institution where uh, people were encouraged not just to be even philosophers in the sense that we think of today, but actually polymaths. They studied political theory, um, geometry, uh, astronomy. Um, and I think perhaps that the cynics viewed some of this as pretentious or, you know, kind of uh, useless uh, acad- in the sense that we say something is overly academic today. Um, we don't see, I don't know, are you, are you aware of Diogenes having studied uh, subjects like uh, geometry, for example, or I feel like he saw that the academics were too bookish, perhaps, in their yeah, studies. Yes, he, 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 there are some. There is a kind of list of disciplines that we know yeah. he considered uh, scientific disciplines that he considered absolutely uh, useless. Right. But you're right; he was uh, he was pointing at and uh, he was rejecting philosophy when philosophy was just a speech. Uh, and uh, and mm-hmm. uh, an intellectual building. There is an anecdote of the rooster, uh, mm-hmm. which is interesting in that way. That Plato had d- decided to, had um, proposed to define the human as a biped uh, with no feather. And uh, what Diogenes did was to take a rooster, to pluck uh, the rooster, and then to say, "This is the human of uh, this is the man of uh, of Plato." And uh, so, so this the, the the anecdote we never know if we did if he did that. But what is interesting is uh, attacking the the speech uh, part of Plato's philosophy. The idea that if it's just right. a, um, an idea uh, from the ground, not from the ground, but like in the sky, it's it's useless. It mm-hmm. doesn't help you to live a life of philosophy. It doesn't help you to go through a philosophical issue. So. It's useless. And the Diogenes was always saying that Plato was, uh, in that way, as a philosopher, a useless person. But they have more common points that we, uh, that, mm. that he did, he did say. Uh, they, they, they are from the same, uh, um, school of philosophy, the Socratic school. So they are yeah. from there, both of them. And, and, uh, and Diogenes wrote too. He, he, he yeah. wrote several treaties, including a political treaty like Plato. So um, there are lots of differences, but you, you could see some common points too. Well, then I have a, another question. This, I suppose this is another slightly deeper question. So we get from the anecdotes an impression that Diogenes embraced a particular lifestyle. But I think what's perhaps less clear, or less clear to me is if he saw himself as part of this tradition that other philosophers were part of, to what extent did Diogenes employ dialectic or engage in debate or employ something resembling the Socratic method? Um, I don't really get the impression that 
he did, but per- perhaps you can shed some light on that. Uh, and I guess a related question would be, how did Diogenes conceive of the training of other? Because I believe he did have some followers. So how did he think philosophers should be educated? Yes, so to, so, so the question of the philosophical technique of uh, conversation. Yeah. Uh, the, the, what we mainly know about Diogenes' technique was uh, what I said before is paresia, meaning you have to say paresia. to people uh, true things, harsh things to hear, and then they, you you yeah. might convert them to philosophy. You might convince them to mm-hmm. uh, by being honest with them, by telling them the truth, by using paresia. Uh, so that's uh, that's the main. Um, specificity of uh, Diogenes' uh, philosophical technique. Uh, but in, in question of uh, followers, yes, he had uh, pupils, which Antisthenes uh, didn't want to, but Diogenes uh, accepted pupils, so he tested them with kind of ordeals and uh, uh, to see if they had a kind of basic ability to be philosophers or if we, if they were not ready at all, and it was then useless. Yeah. But the, the main point was to to give away everything, uh, every belonging, everything you owned, uh, your your life. Uh, you have yeah. to leave your family life behind you. You have to leave your estate behind you. So uh, the point of uh, being a cynic philosopher was to live a life of mendicancy. To, so if you are a beggar, you in a way you live a life of uh, philosophy because it was a very tough life to be a beggar in ancient Greek cities. Greeks they didn't like yes. uh, beggars at all, and uh, no. even uh, if beggars in ancient times could look like beggars in medieval times, the uh-huh. the relationship of society to beggars uh-huh. has, has has changed a lot during uh, the Christian era. The, the, the mendicants, the beggars, were used to um, help people save their arms. So if you give something to the beggar, it's helping you. Uh, that's the Christian yes. way of approaching mendicancy. But in the ancient times, in the uh, Greek pagan cities, it was not at all the way. They were, uh, beggars were considered as parasites, and Diogenes yeah. was often insulted, uh, beaten sometimes, spit at, etc. So, because he was considered as a parasite. And uh, mm-hmm. all the point of the cynic uh, philosophy is to change that uh, that relationship to poverty and to mendicancy. And uh, uh, we have an anecdote saying, uh, saying that uh, uh, Diogenes was trying to make a distinction between mendicancy and his behavior. He said, I'm mm-hmm. not uh, begging, I'm asking. So I, I, it's in Greek, it's aitain, apaitain. I'm not begging, I'm asking for something, but I give something in return. So mm-hmm. the, the whole thing of the cynic uh, attitude, cynic philosopher attitude, was that, yes, they were begging, but they were providing to people uh, some philosophical advice and help. So uh, they were considering that there was a kind of reciprocity, social reciprocity yeah. of the relationship. In some ways, I'm so following on from what you've said. In sometimes, in some ways, I'm surprised that Diogenes had any followers, or that he was held in it. Because you know, we we have to assume. I guess that you were saying earlier there were different strata in Athenian society and in other Greek cities, and people, of course, like today, had different opinions about things. But I think there would have been many people in Athenian society and in Corinth who really 
despised someone like Diogenes for several reasons. He's an exile, he's a beggar. There were many people who didn't even like philosophers uh, at that time. Some people really admired and loved philosophers, but others despised those as well. And Diogenes is a combination of several things um, that certain Greeks would have, would have really looked down on. Yes, 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 absolutely. The, 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 the Athenian society or Korean society, Corinthian society, uh, they had some mixed feelings uh, yeah. to Diogenes. So some yes. people loved him, some people couldn't stand him. And maybe sometimes mm-hmm. the same person had a kind yeah. of sympathy for Diogenes most of the time, but couldn't stand him at uh, yeah. uh, one day or another because he was a tough guy to... Uh, it was a tough company. Uh, he, he was not, as I said, uh, he was not living with, with any um, um, consideration to courtesy, uh, politeness, uh, social conventions. So it could be, it could be uh, difficult, but we know that uh, when uh, his jaw has been broken, the Athenian, mm-hmm. that is a legend, says that the Athenians voted a decree to buy him a new Sonic yes. jar. A new so, jar. And, yeah. and even if the story is not true, it means that at some point he was integrated in the city and he has some allies and some some friends. And uh, but after, that's a, I was going to say after his death, is there not an anecdote that a statue was erected to him? Yes. Uh, after his demise, I can't remember which city it was in. Maybe was it in Corinth or in in Sinope? There is one in. Uh, there is a kind of funerary monument in uh, in Corinth, outside Corinth, next to the Cypress Grove, uh-huh. where he was uh, spending some time right. in summer. And there is a statue with uh, um, an inscription in Sinope. Yes. By, by his, uh, with an inscription uh, made probably composed by one of his students, Philiscus of Aegina. Right. Yes. So this, this suggests that he was held in high regard. Um, but there's also a tradition um, that, would, that was disputed by Socrates and, and other philosophers. But still, nevertheless, I think there's a strong tradition that existed in Greek society that believed that virtue was associated with nobility of birth. Um, it came from coming from a good family. And Diogenes' uh, claim to be virtuous would have, I think, offended uh, aristocratic Greeks who believed that there was an association between virtue and being a good person and uh, coming from a noble family. Yes, the question of origin is a um, very... Um... Um, present in the social life in ancient Greek cities. It's, it's uh, providing power, notability, uh, access to a, a political power, uh, mainly. But uh, in Diogenes' perspective, the, this, is one, uh, this was one of the fake uh, part of identities of people. Uh, you, you were only what you did. So you, your identity was based on your actions, not on your origin, not so on your money, not on your outfit, uh, not on your uh, marriage, your family, your offspring, anything like that. So uh, everything that was um, about your, your social attachments, social links, was irrelevant to Diogenes. So he, he was um, unbuilding, destroying uh, every every kind of uh, um, social relationship model. 
and religious conventions, which I uh, I wanted to kind of segue into now, because I and the, I'm speculating about this, but it seems to me that in Greek society, um, there would have been some people in Greek society, more superstitious fat parts of the society, who looked at someone who was exiled, lived in poverty, and and was captured by pirates, and thought this person has perhaps been punished by the gods, you know, and and perhaps you don't even want to associate. Maybe this person is contaminated in a way um, because they seem to uh, have very bad luck uh, in life. And uh, I think there would have been people that viewed his poverty and circumstances in a a kind of superstitious way. But he, the cynics also had um, uh, a a rather cynical attitude uh, towards towards religion um maybe you can uh, you can say a little bit about that and we saw what we saw the accusations against socrates for impiety leading to his ecu- uh, his execution so we know that in greek society it was dangerous to to question religious conventions and yet the cynics appear to some extent to have challenged some of those traditions uh, i wonder if you could say a bit about how diogenes and the other cynics viewed religion Yes, the, 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 the position, the, the, the starting position of Diogenes was to consider that there was no way to be sure of the existence or the non-existence of gods. So that, that's the, the beginning. He was uh, approaching it, the, the question, as a scholar. We, we can't mm-hmm. prove it, but we can't prove the other way. So that's the first point. But the second mm-hmm. uh, point is that he, we have different anecdotes showing that uh, uh, he considered religion as a kind of social convention and he was uh, rejecting social conventions. But at the same time, he said that religion was preventing people from doing some bad and unphilosophical things. So in a way, it has kind of uh, utility. It was religion in a way was useful, but we couldn't prove God existed. And um, the the uh, yes, basically. Mm. You, um, I'm thinking of some anecdotes that I've heard about him, but I don't I, I don't know how well attested they are or how how old they are. But I, th- I believe there was one where he's. I think Diogenes is said to have taken a wooden statuette of Heracles and used it to kindle a fire uh, to cook his lentils. You have uh, you have this anecdote? I, yeah, I believe I believe that said of uh, Diogenes. Maybe maybe I'm confusing it with an anecdote, but one of the no, other cynics. Maybe I, I'm sorry, but I don't remember this uh, at the time just now. Uh, and you had another anecdote in in mind, or? I think there's a few that I am aware of um, where the cynics in general are asked questions about... I think there are some anecdotes that show the cynics wanting, refusing to engage in discussion about the existence of the gods, um, yes. as if they believed that yes. if they, they, it, there's a restriction on paresia. Like if, you, if they were to speak freely about maybe questions that they had or unconventional views, it... it that would be crossing a line, like they would they would probably be executed um, or banished yes. or something if they did that. Yeah, 
No, it's not. Uh, the thing is, they were not. Yes, you. In a way, you're right. They were not interested in the question. Religion yeah. is not a big question in Cynic philosophy. That's a, that's the main thing you can say. They, they were not so much interested in that they, because they they didn't they didn't really see the point in everyday life apart from what you said before the question of mm-hmm. superstition. So, Diogenes yeah. and Cynic, Cynic philosophers were making fun of people who had a very extreme relationship yeah. to God. So that they were making fun of, on that they were uh, trying to uh, to deep, to unveil. But but um, they didn't consider the question of God as a major philosophical question. That's the main thing you could say about the relationship between uh, the scenic corpus and the question of God's and religion. And so, therefore, interestingly, they don't seem to believe that possessing virtue or living a good life requires studying religion or following the gods, perhaps, or engaging in the right prayers or sacrifices. So they, in a way, this is... So some people in Athenian society or in other Greek cities might think, well, to have a good life is to sacrifice appropriately to the gods. Like, and to be in the favor of the gods. And the, the cynics seem to stand in contrast to that. They think, no, this is kind of irrelevant. Um, you know, all that really matters is that you develop self-sufficiency and strength of character and virtue. Yes, the, the, the thing is, uh, rituals were social conventions to the cynics. So they were talking about that in that way. So uh, they didn't care uh, if someone believed there were some gods somewhere someday. But what they said is, uh, if there is some god somewhere, we, we know for sure that he doesn't give a damn about uh, your rituals so 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 the the um, yes. the, the, yeah. the, the position of of cynics was to uh, to point at the um, social conventions around religion rituals were social conventions yeah. and no more and even if there are some gods and we cannot prove it even if there are some gods they don't care about our rituals that's for sure and the other famous phrase, I think we touched on it very briefly earlier, that's particularly associated with Diogenes, is this idea that, of being a citizen of the cosmos. And incidentally, that's an example of something else that we mentioned earlier, which is this saying is also attributed to Socrates. Funnily enough, by Epictetus, if I remember rightly, he seems to believe that it was Socrates that originated the the phrase "I'm a, a citizen of the world" or "a citizen of the cosmos," but generally it's associated strongly associated with the figure of Diogenes the Cynic. I wondered why do you think he arrived at that view? You've given some hints already in terms of his life story, um, and what do you think is the significance of his cosmopolitanism, and what was its impact on other thinkers? Yeah, uh, I, I I would um, understand this as a kind of echo of his um, life, uh-huh. in a way. Uh, he was uh, uh, in contact with um, non-Greek, lots of non-Greek communities at the beginning of, of the first part of his life. And then he, he lived in exile, meaning he realized that first, 
Some people don't live the great way. Second, mm-hmm. uh, you if you, you're not always a citizen in the city you are living in, and uh, uh, he was not the first to make uh, that observation, but he made a philosophy of it. Uh, that's the yeah. difference. He, so he, he realized that there was some kind of um, artificiality in um, the fact that you claim to belong to a certain group, a certain association, yes. a certain community. So again, the, the point of Diogenes was to uh, unbuild uh, these conventions, that, these groups. He said, family is a convention. You don't need it. Your village, it's a convention. Your city, it's a convention. So if you unbuild every kind of group you can belong to, at the end, the only group remaining is cosmos, the world. Yeah. So, so you could say the community of human beings. So, uh-huh. the, so the the cosmopolitanism idea of uh, Diogenes and the invention of Diogenes, if we accept the invention, uh, is uh, as a close link with his life as uh, a Greek from the Black Sea and an exile and then a slave and then uh, again um, a free stranger, a resident foreigner. So that's that's uh, that's the core of it. And how, that's one of the main things, I think, one, main, one of the main concepts that the Stoics derived from, from the Cynic tradition. Um, I, mean, I suppose for listeners that aren't aware that may be interested in Stoicism, um, there's sometimes Diogenes Laertius that we mentioned earlier and some other ancient authors had this idea of a Cynic-Stoic succession whereby they thought you could trace a kind of direct lineage from Socrates to Antisthenes to Diogenes to Crates of Thebes and then to his student Zeno of Citium, who was the founder of Stoicism. And Zeno, the, the first Stoic, studied cynicism and trained in it for, I think it was about 10 years or more in Athens. And he seems to have been very influenced by cynicism throughout his life. I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit and say, how do you see the relationship between the early Stoics in particular and the, the Cynics? Yeah, the, the, I think the, the main common, in, in a way, um, the Stoics are, you could describe them as reasonable Cynics, if you, yeah. if you wish. Uh, the, 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 the main uh, common point, the, the, the link between them, uh, you said uh, it's Crates, the, the, the main pupil of Diogenes, who, who has been the master of Zeno. But the, the main common point is uh, the idea of living a life of philosophy. Both yeah. Cynics and Stoics um, decided that to be a philosopher was not to build a body of doctrine, or at least not mainly to build a body of doctrine, but to live uh, an everyday life of philosophy. And that is really the, um, it's a kind of con- strong, strong continuity between cynics and, uh, stoics. And the, 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 on the idea of living a life, um, um, following a certain idea of virtue, if you want, even if they didn't have the same exact idea of virtue. I think over the centuries, Stoicism flourished for about five centuries, from the time of Zeno down to the time of Marcus Aurelius, after after which we really don't hear very much about it again. Um, But over that time, Stoicism split into several varieties. And I get the impression that some of them were more old school and more aligned with cynicism 
And some of them were more urbane and more aligned with Platonism and Aristotelianism. And I think, for example, the surviving Stoic literature that we have mainly comes from Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, and Seneca. And Epictetus loves the cynics. Like, he holds up Diogenes is one of his supreme role models of a virtuous life. Um, But Seneca doesn't admire the cynics so much. He says instead that Plato is one of his favorite philosophers. And I think between Epictetus and Seneca, we get two different flavors of two brands of of Stoicism, one that leans more to the cynics and and I think one that leans more towards uh, Plato and the, the academy. Yes, yes, there are, there are different, uh, um, I don't know how to say that, uh, echoes in the ancient uh, philosophical school of the uh, imperial Roman times uh, from yeah. cynicism. So uh, first there has been different ways to understand cynicism. So if you read the document from the 4th century to the end of antiquity about cynicism, you see that the way to define cynicism changes uh, with mm-hmm. time. And uh, the, 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 um, the place uh, you reserve, the space you reserve to transgressive behaviors, for example, is not mm-hmm. um, the same during all the history of uh, cynicism. And yes, you're right. The, uh, it's been a kind of... A, cynicism began to be a kind of big ball where uh, yeah. philosophers of the imperial time were picking uh, up ideas that they liked and uh, let away the ideas that they didn't like. And it's not... Um, we can make the same observation with Christian fathers. Uh, some Christian fathers yeah. produced, uh, you could say, a kind of honest uh, idea of what was cynic philosophy, and others uh, produced a kind of uh, twisted idea, really uh, uh, misunderstanding and d- diabolizing, uh, um, making a caricature of the cynic uh, yeah. philosophy. So we find that uh, in history of ancient philosophy in imperial time, so the, the the same body of doctrine is uh, uh, split and reinterpreted. Yes. I wondered if, in conclusion, there was a question um, that you would like our listeners to think over in regard to the things that we've been discussing today. Uh, Maybe something that you could leave them with that they could reflect upon and ponder. Yes, I have one question. It's a very short one. Uh, Is comfort is comfort an expression of success? Is comfort an expression of success? It's quite, it's quite a profound question. I'd be interesting to see uh, if they, they can comment on that, actually, when we uh, post the, uh, the podcast episode and we'll, we'll see uh, what people's responses are. Um, that's an interesting one. Well, I'd like to thank you for your time today. It's been an absolutely fascinating discussion about one of the most intriguing figures uh, in the ancient world uh, and definitely in ancient philosophy. So thank you very much to Jean-Manuel Rubineau and uh, thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Um, Please share the podcast episode with your friends and comment below. And uh, we look forward to hearing your responses to Jean-Manuel's question today. 
Thank so, you for invi- uh, thank you for your invitation. Sorry, it's it's been a been an absolute pleasure. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Okay, so bye everybody. Bye.